Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today I'm joined by Trey, who recently became our third politics guy. Now, Trey's co-hosted with me a few times already, but today, for the first time, he's moving into the driver's seat. Our plan is for this to be a regular thing with Trey doing the show once a month, usually with me, but maybe sometimes with Jay when I need a week off. And so if you have any thoughts about the new arrangement, we would certainly love to hear from you. Of course, you can email us at mail at politicsguys.com, post comments on our website, politicsguys.com, or reach us through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. And with that, I will turn things over to Trey. Thanks, Mike. It's kind of fun to get to be uh, doing the your side of the task today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I think what we're going to kind of start out with today is the big news is we have uh, Representative Scalia is, is uh, shot this week. And this has led to a bunch of really fascinating questions. Um, the shooter was James Hodgkins. He was 66. And he had a list of Republicans on his person. And so he's coming out. It looks like he is uh, gunning for some Republicans, quite literally. Uh, he has a legally purchased gun, but pretty quickly it becomes apparent that he's, in fact, a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, and this has led to a lot of discussion on the left and the right about violence and the political discourse. Um, on the left, we've got Democrats saying on Twitter, um, quote, let's cut through the platitudes. Anyone who participated in the unjust vilifications of Hillary Clinton helped toxify our discourse. Um, all the way to uh, George Taki talking about how it's the universe uh, who makes a homophobe saved by a black lesbian. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, we have this new idea of the culture of violence that uh, the Daily call, uh, Caller called it just the latest in an escalating pattern of violence and intimidation against Republicans. The ever-reliable Infowars said that <laughs> we have been warning for months that the mainstream media's hysterical anti-Trump narrative will radicalize and demented social justice warriors on the left. Uh, and this fits into kind of a larger set of issues going on this week. So, Michael, what do you think about what's happened with the shooting and what it means uh, politically on the left and the right? Well, you know, I'm not at all surprised that that was the response on in many places on the right, because that's exactly the sort of response that we saw from the left when, you know, the, the shoe was on the other foot, when the shooter was, you know, uh, perhaps more on, on the right side of things. And so like with Gabby Giffords, for instance. Exactly, exactly. And so it's, you know, it's, of course, unfortunate that both sides try to politicize these things. But but to me, I really see this as being uh, part of two kind of larger, more fundamental problems. One of those you already mentioned, sort of deep partisan divisions and the second one being a uh, uh, well, kind of a gun culture that we've had and will continue to have in the United States. You add those things up together, you combine in a nice dollop, an unfortunate dollop of media sensationalism, and these sort of things sadly end up happening, you know. Um, well, it's been fascinating because this go-round, it doesn't seem as if uh, gun control has really been the main focus, at least in the, in the primary discourse. It's been about kind of the bounds and the necessities of the First Amendment. So what do you think about that from the left perspective? Well, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that we don't hear more about that. But then again, I, you know, I think after after Sandy Hook, after all these shootings, if nothing was going to happen from them and nothing did really significantly happen, at least not at the federal level, that 
that that becomes almost kind of a, a dead letter in a way is that we're not going to move forward on that. We're not going to change the gun culture in the United States. We're not going to do a thing like say Australia did after their you know major shooting a while back. And so that's not going to happen. And, and, you know, I guess one of the frustrating things to me about this entire situation is I don't really see that we can do a whole heck of a lot about either part of this. We're not going to change the gun culture. There aren't going to be any major alterations in our gun laws, at least at the federal level. So there's always going to be that access, at least for the short and intermediate term future. And secondly, there's nothing that I see on the horizon that's going to do anything to, to mitigate, to lessen either the partisan divisions or the sensationalism in the media that sort of feeds uh, mentally disturbed people on both the right and the left who end up doing these things. So I'm, I'm very pessimistic on both sides of this, I guess. Well, it's fascinating because I think one of the the interesting things for me is it kind of capped off a week where we were already having this conversation. Uh, online, we'd even had some conversations with listeners about the New York Public Theater's production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where we had already had this kind of argument that uh, be, the way we were portraying the use of free speech was negative coming from the right. Or uh, Kathy Griffin and the bloodied model of Donald Trump's head. Uh, which kind of had the backlash on both sides. Uh, I mean, do you think that those are kind of feeding into a narrative that is chipping away at First Amendment rights? Or do you think this is just kind of the normal posturing that comes after any event like this? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's largely the kind of normal posturing. I sort of have a, have a larger thought about, you know, you mentioned the Kathy Griffin thing, and I'm, great, I'm glad you did because I, I think that's kind of, part of a larger piece with a lot of this. But before we get to that, I just want to make sure that we thank our first sponsor for today's show, SeatGeek. Um, I've been told that actually they've been a sponsor for a little while now, and apparently my pronunciation, sometimes a little off, SeatGeek, I sometimes don't uh, enunciate my T's, my wife tells me. And so listeners who pointed that out, sorry about that. But let me, let me tell you, SeatGeek, they're a great, low-cost, super convenient way to buy tickets for live events. Uh, and with SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed, and it only takes either a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website, SeatGeek.com. And I've got the app, and it gives me all sorts of recommendations that are tailored specifically to my musical interests. Like just yesterday, the app let me know that James McMurtry was coming to Cincinnati, and he's someone I'd love to see. And if SeatGeek hadn't told me about him, I would have completely missed that opportunity to see him. Um, plus, with SeatGeek, you get updates on whatever venues, events, performers you'd like to keep track of. It will even hook up with Spotify, your music library, Facebook, to kind of give you notifications about artists you listen to. But if you don't want that, you can turn that off too. Uh, and when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want. So it's super convenient. And, and best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code Politics guy, that's all one word and no S, Y, I don't know, but just politics guy. Uh, enter that and that promo code will give you $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, um, so yeah, on to my answer that, you know, the Kathy Griffin thing, and that to me is an example of, uh, we've always had, I think, extreme people like this. Uh, and I think that it's just our, our culture, social media allows these things to 
go viral and to be magnified and and makes you know what would be a, a minor thing much worse. Now, obviously, the shooting—that's a whole different thing. But I think, I think that people like this guy—they get fed by this sort of vitriol, which is so easily channeled and focused, and so people can get worked up in a way today that I don't think they could to the same extent before social media and so forth. And so that, that to me is, is the truly disturbing thing about all this is I don't see this going away. And I know Mark Zuckerberg has made some noises about how Facebook can change and so forth, but that's not, that's not the business model. That's not the incentives. These, you know, these platforms are designed to give us more of what we want to affirm our views, to get us worked up and outraged and, that business model is not going to change. And so I don't have any good answers to this. These things are obviously, you know, horrible and tragic, but I'm honestly sometimes surprised that we don't see more of this sort of awful stuff. You know, and that's interesting because, I mean, there was a theory back when talk radio became big. I don't know if you've ever read um, a book called Echo Chamber, uh, Echo Chamber. Uh, which would argue basically that when you started getting in and they were they were specifically talking about new media in terms of radio being kind of a, a new form of an old media, uh, then you got in these echo chambers and you were able to kind of get hyper partisanized. Um, and that's how you would end up with well, they wouldn't have called it Alex Jones, but today would be considered Alex Jones. I mean, is that kind of what you're arguing here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's just gotten worse, obviously, with, you know, with the ascendancy of social media in the last, whatever, decade or so. And, and I don't, and that's the thing is I don't see that changing. I, I don't see any reason why it would change if we rely on people's better natures or appeals to, I don't know, decency or something like that. That's, that's not going to work. I mean, this, this exploits a, a basic fundamental feature of human psychology uh, for, for the, for the worse, I would certainly argue. And, you know, and, and that, that's part of the reason why, uh, why we started this show in the first place to try to push back against that. But it's, it's incredibly difficult because people want to be outraged and want to be worked up and want their their views to be affirmed and you know I know I know you're familiar with the research that says that you put people in with a group of like-minded folks and it tends to actually make them more radical and that's exactly what we're getting unfortunately and you know and here's a problem and I don't have an answer for this uh, but one of the things that I think is fascinating anybody who wants to geek out on this maybe we can do it more sometime uh, but you know, once you once we start kind of making that argument, you're you're really kind of pulling out some of the pillars of democracy. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um, because you know, you're what we're arguing then in that case is that you know the average person in these kinds of environments won't be able to make the informed best kind of decision, and that of course is the is the is one of the major pillars of a Republican or a Democratic system of government. So I mean. When we start talking about this, do we ever need to back up and ask, you know, what what are we talking about to the larger theoretical structures of our government? What do you think, Mike? No, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a very real threat. You know, survey data kind of backs this sort of thing up where we're showing that more and more people see the other party actually not as just misguided, but as a real threat to the country of bad people who are trying to destroy the country. And that didn't used to be the case. And you take a look at, you know, all kinds of survey data, and it's pretty clear that 
that's what's going on, and nobody has any good answers for for, for halting that. And, and so, it, it, and I don't mean to get, I'm not a sensationalist by nature. I tend to think that the system has a remarkable ability to to, to self-correct and to heal itself, but but you know, it, this sort of tribalism that we seem to be going back into, this sort of almost pre-industrial tribalism, it makes me wonder. You know, we have this fundamental assumption of progress that the future is always going to be better than the past, and that we're going to come together and so forth. But if you take a look at the broader sweep of history, that isn't necessarily the case. And and as as much as I'd like to think that this is just sort of a blip, uh, I, I don't. I don't. I think I'm kind of hoping against hope in a way because all the evidence to me points to this not being a blip, but the things actually getting a lot worse before they get better in this sense. Wow. No, it is fascinating. I think you're right that there's there's often and it's easy to have that that teleologically feud, flawed view that you know you're always moving towards this ultimate endpoint, uh, and that ultimate endpoint is going to be better. Uh, and you know I. I don't know if I'm quite maybe in this case, maybe ironically, I'm not quite maybe as pessimistic as you, but I definitely agree uh, that it can be easy to kind of get into that model where you think everything has to move in one direction. It's going to get better. And I think especially for people on the left, there's been this idea that and you were kind of hinting at it there, that that tribalism or that nationalism is going to be a thing of the past. And I don't think that that's a cultural feature that's going away anytime soon. And I think it kind of feeds into our conversation here about media. Um, but while we're kind of talking about uh, nations, nationalisms, and uh, where we're headed, why don't we talk a little bit about the Cuba restrictions? Yeah, definitely. Um, sound good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before we do, though, let me let me just mention our uh, second sponsor for today's show, uh, longtime sponsor, Dollar Shave Club, which delivers an amazing smooth shave, and, and you can get high-quality blades and that amazing shave butter delivered right to your door for an incredible smooth shave, and a Father's Day pretty much here right now, but, you know, if you forgot or you want to get, get Dad, uh, you know, a little late, but, oh, Father's Day gift, what would be better than a membership to Dollar Shave Club? I think that'd be pretty cool. You know, I, I've said it before. I went away from razors. I hated the high cost, the inconvenience, going to the store, paying a ridiculous amount of money for the cartridges, tried to cheap plastic disposable things. That was a bloody disaster. And so Dollar Shave Club solved all of these problems for me. It can do the same thing for, for, for you too. And for a limited time, New members get their first month of the Executive Razor, a tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, 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 which is great stuff for only five bucks, and that's with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few dollars a month. It's a $15 value for only $5. And in that first month's box, you get this really nice weighty handle, a full cassette of four executive cartridges and the tube of shave butter. And you can only get this offer now. Go to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay. So you were saying Cuba. Yes, Cuba. Um, although I have to say that that actually is a phenomenal deal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, definitely. Everybody should do it. But uh, no, Obama, uh, Cuba. In, in Cuba, we've had a huge change of policy uh, announced this past Friday. 
so kind of set up uh, our listeners a little bit. Uh, starting in 2004, Obama had announced that he wanted to normalize relations with Cuba. Um, and by March 2016, Obama is going to make a pretty historic trip. He'll be the first president in 88 years to visit the island. Um, and he is going to have a big policy shift. And importantly, this policy shift is going to come exclusively through executive authority um, to allow for people-to-people -people educational trips. And it wiped away most of the stiff commercial restrictions um, and allowed the use of dollar transactions in Cuba. And so this past Friday, President Trump uh, called this, uh, quote, a terrible and misguided deal, end quote, uh, and vowed to reinstate the travel and commercial restrictions. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was supported by this and by one of my senators, um, Senator Marco Rubio, who has been at the forefront of pushing for more restrictive uh, Cuba policies ever since 2014. Um, and what ended up getting signed by Trump wasn't exactly a complete uh, kill for the Obama year. Uh, it's still possible to use dollars for transactions in Cuba, um, but his six-page document will and hinder much of money coming in, especially if they're doing anything, quote, controlled by the Cuban military, and it walls off crucial parts of the economy. It also ends completely the people-to-people -people educational trip, um, but it doesn't stop Cuban Americans from continuing to send money to the island. Um, senior White House officials have argued that the intent was not to disrupt existing business relationships, um, but on the business side, it seems like many people are a little bit upset about this. As a matter of fact, uh, Airbnb was pretty upset about this. And so there's been a little bit of pushback, but a lot of happiness from some quarters, including from those like Marco Rubio and a number of other senators uh, who are happy to kind of see a return to what some have called uh, Cold, um, Cold War era uh, relationship. What do you think about all this, Mike? Well, you know, that I was in favor of Obama opening up relations with Cuba. And as you pointed out, uh, as so often with Donald Trump, uh, he's rhetorically making a bigger case than what's actually happening in reality. It's not entirely unwinding all the Obama, what I see as progress. You know, we still have embassies and it's still possible to go there. And it's still possible for uh, uh, for Cubans to, uh, to, to send money home and do things like that. But but, you know, I guess that the main thing that people might wonder is, you know, why is this so big of a deal? You know, because Cuba, right, is a very small, very poor country. It's like it's only like around 3.5 percent the size of the U.S. in terms of population. Its GDP is tiny, like 0.5 percent of U.S. GDP. Why do we care so much? And in a word, your home state, Florida. Right. Because Cuba has an outsized importance in especially in South Florida, which, by the way, Trump won by just one point two percent. You know, and so, I mean, this to me is is an example of kind of domestic politics driving foreign policy in a way. If Florida didn't have what's it, 29 electoral votes and wasn't the biggest swing state in presidential politics really right now, I don't think this would be nearly the issue. In fact, I think we would have had norm, much more normal normalized relations much earlier. But again, because of presidential politics, that's not the case. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I disagree with uh, pulling back on this. I mean, I think the Castros have outlasted a lot of American, uh, uh, American presidents, and we have kind of demonstrated that our unilateral uh, sanctions uh, embargo against Cuba has been uh, largely ineffective. It hasn't worked. It, it's If it was going to work, it would have worked sometime in the last 50 or so years. 
It hasn't. And so President Obama decided to try something a little bit different. And I think that was a smart move. And I think that that eventually is going to lead to better relations. I mean, the, the, the Castros can't be around forever. Jeez, Raul's got to be like 130 years old at this point, you know. So this is going <laughs> to change. Like and we want to set the groundwork to, to, to make that happen. And I don't think we do it by sticking with uh, uh, what I see as a failed policy. No, and, and you started that off with something really interesting because there has been this fascinating differentiation with President uh, Trump between his rhetoric and what ends up ends up coming up on paper. Um, you know, here, you know, this is this, this terrible and misguided deal, but then he doesn't actually gut the whole thing, um, which in some ways kind of echoes some of his tweets earlier in the week uh, when he kind of gets after. Uh, his own White House for a travel ban that he thinks, you know, well, it, this is all watered down. Like, <laughs> yeah. why are we doing that? Right. So he had this really strong rhetoric. He can't get through his quote unquote watered down version through. And you kind of wonder uh, where in that, at least I do, you know, where is Trump? So, I mean, is what he's saying, what he really thinks, and he's not able to convince the rest of his staff effectively uh, to make that happen? Or is this just him you know, striking the best deal. You say one thing and, and then you put the, the next best thing on paper. I mean, is that what's happening here in Cuba? What do you think about that, Mike? Well, you know, I, I guess the the positive spin, the most pro-Trump spin I can I can put on this, and I'm probably going to get some some <laughs> comments on this, but, but, but you're, let me... You're, you're thinking of the Twitter reaction now. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but I think one way to look at it is to say, Donald Trump's actually doing a very smart thing. What he's saying is he's not the reason why he didn't pull back entirely on what Obama did is say is is it's a it's a a gambit a strategy saying listen we're willing to kind of move forward but you have to give us a better deal so it's kind of like a very sophisticated thoughtful uh, carrot and stick kind of thing plan but to me. That might be plausible if you talked about a different administration. But but as somebody else suggested that, uh, I forget who, who, who said this, saying that, you know, uh, everyone else is playing chess, but the Trump administration is playing checkers. That's kind of strategically where they're at. And, and to me, I think that there's a lot more evidence to suggest that. So you certainly can spin a story in which this is a very smart kind of looking three steps ahead strategic gambit, but I don't buy it. I see it more as a, just the Florida's importance. Donald Trump loves to be loved. And he also wants to show that he's not Barack Obama. And so he's going to do this. I honestly don't think it goes a whole lot further than that. You know, it's interesting because from my libertarian perspective, these kinds of attempts to use economic sanctions as a way to force institutional change have long been demonstrated to be ineffective. I mean, it's not as if uh, having more or less relationship with China somehow uh, made them more or less democratic. I mean, I, I think the best argument you can make from the data is that by making your economic situation freer, that you at least create the best conditions possible for a more free political society. Uh, and so yeah. why ha having these big trade barriers, I mean, it's an, I'm not trying to suggest that if you open up trade with uh, China, you instantaneously make them free, but I'm just suggesting that it's your best option for the, the best coalition of variables to make that move forward. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I agree. I think, you know, when when sanctions are 
uh, multilateral, there's the possibility of them having a real effect and, and changing, changing things. But when it's just kind of us doing them and the rest of the world's ignoring that, that makes it a lot harder. And again, there's the evidence, not just of the literature, right, but the evidence of, of Castro's in power and this regime in power for a long, long time that suggests that, hey, this strategy is a failure. And, uh, you know, if we continue on, we shouldn't necessarily expect different results. Yeah. And the thing that's particularly fascinating is, you know, during the original Cold War, the original reason for holding this off was Cuba's considered basically a puppet state of the USSR. Right. Well, I mean, while Putin is not a good guy, he's obviously not putting nukes in Cuba uh, and they don't particularly have a phenomenal relationship. So it's not as if, you know, as you're noting, they've been here post Russian propping. So obviously this policy was unsuccessful. Yeah. So I guess we, it sounds like we are definitely in agreement on this one. Hey, that's that's a little bit crazy. I don't yeah, think we would be quite this mission <laughs> agreement. Oh, no. Anyway, um, what if we move forward and talk a little bit about Sessions' testimony this week? Because I think that was really big, especially coming after um, Kami last week. Um, so Sessions is going to come and he is going to really have kind of a number of big uh, points that he's going to drop. He's going to deny meeting with Russian officials uh, at the Mayflower Hotel uh, in April 2016. He is going to contest a bunch of what Comey is going to uh, argue during his uh, meeting, although he's going to agree with parts of it. Um, the part he's going to agree with is that he did know that uh, Comey didn't want to be alone with Trump anymore, but he didn't get any details. So he's going to kind of walk that back a little bit. Uh, Sessions is going to repeatedly refuse, and I think we might have something to talk about here for a while, Mike, uh, his conversations uh, with President Trump regarding the Russian investigation, uh, arguing basically that it's consistent with longstanding Democratic, I'm sorry, Department of Justice practice, uh, and that he won't violate his duty to protect confidential communication with the president. Uh, Democrats are going to push back strong and hard on this because they're going to argue that there has not been any executive privilege evoked. So we may want to chat about that. Um, he's also going to argue really that, that he doesn't remember a lot of things except for the fact that he didn't do anything illegal. So what do you think about Sessions' testimony? How does this uh, relate to what's happening in the uh, wake of Kami's testimony? What do you think? Well, I, I, the first thing I think is, if I'm anyone who has a meeting with President Trump, the first thing I do is hit record on my phone before I walk into that room, right? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the star with, I mean, because pretty clearly that, that's, uh, that could be really important, although apparently uh, President Trump might be hitting record too, uh, as, as we, we may find out at some point. I guess the more, more to the point uh, of the story, I, I do not like Jeff Sessions in terms of his policies. I mean, I think his policies are horrifically misguided. I think he's going to be a colossally bad attorney general taking us in exactly the wrong direction. That said, I don't think that he in any way is in collusion or had been in collusion with the Russians. I find that strains credulity. You know, people can be decent, honorable people, and just have incredibly different views about what's in the public good. And I think that's where Jeff Sessions and I differ. And there are some people who argue that he's a, a racist and so forth. I, I, I don't believe that. I won't even get into that. But in any case, that part of it, I don't think there's a whole lot there. Um, as for the other part that you mentioned, the 
why Jeff Sessions so frustrated his former colleagues in the Senate by, you know, claiming, not really claiming executive privilege, but wanting to preserve that possibility for the president. To me, that's exactly the sort of thing as president that you would want a loyal appointee to do. You know, if, if I'm if I'm the president, that's exactly what I want my attorney general to say as little as possible. Right. Um, so while I can understand it being frustrating, I think Jeff Sessions, is, for better or worse, is being a good soldier, a, a loyal Trump appointee. Uh, but but honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot there with with that. And I. You know, we'll find out with the investigation, maybe in a few years or something like that, what's really there. But to me, as is so often the case with these things, it's not going to be about the the crime, the so-called, you know, the, the alleged crime, who knows. But it's going to be more about the, the cover-up, the obstruction of justice, which apparently now the leaks say that, you know, uh, that, that, uh, that Mueller is investigating, and rightly so. So I think that, to me, is, is, is more the story. And I... I think that Jeff Sessions did, by his lights, the right thing. And if it were a Democratic president and a Democratic attorney general, I would hope that that person would do uh, the same the same sort of thing. Now, of course, Jeff Sessions can be compelled to testify and can be held in contempt of Congress if he doesn't. But I don't I don't see things going to that point. And that's an interesting question, because, I mean, do you think that this kind of bespeaks a larger point that presidents i mean in in political science uh for our listeners you know for a long time we have moved away from what we'd call congressional government to presidential government and do you think these kinds of moments where you have the white house or a white house delegate basically flaunting a little bit of the investigatory powers of congress and congress not really being able to push back is that sign of that, that kind of broader uh, seep of power to the executive branch? Well, yeah, you know, and, and I think it's a sign of what we've seen for, for a long time. Now, not so much that Congress is losing power, but Congress is choosing not to exercise its power for various reasons. Obviously, I think we get a very different reaction if the Senate were controlled by uh, the, the Democrats than by the Republicans. But I mean, in, in many cases, I feel like Congress just chooses not to act as forcefully as it, it certainly could. As I pointed out, Congress certainly could compel Sessions to testify, could force the issue, but they are choosing not to do that. Right. Now, and, and I think that's kind of an interesting broader story about, as you noted, Congress not activating its powers, right? It kind of has these latent abilities to do things, um, but they choose not to do it, I think, primarily for re-election purposes. Yeah. Um, but now, I think one last kind of really interesting point about the sessions was that even when he was talking with some of his Republican, or he was getting uh, questioned by some of the Republicans, so for instance, John McCain, you know, he's going to get pushed at, to give details on a number of meetings, especially, especially his September meeting, and Sessions just keeps saying, I don't recall, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't recall. Um, do you think that's going to come back to be a bigger issue? Uh, because that just seems... It seems unlikely that there are this many things about which he has nothing to say. I think I think if you're a, a smart and cautious person, and I think that Jeff Sessions probably uh, uh, ticks both those boxes, the safe thing to say is you don't recall because no one can 
really prove that you recall when you didn't. And the less you say, the less you're likely to potentially incriminate yourself or get your boss in hot water down the line. So, and also as an attorney, of course, he knows how valuable I don't recall is as an answer. So maybe he doesn't recall, maybe he does, but I think he could at least technically say, well, I don't exactly recall. And he's not going to say, well, I don't recall, but here's kind of what I vaguely remember about this. And let me just kind of talk for a while. I mean, that's what his boss does. That's what Donald Trump does. And that's why this is so much of a, an issue right now is because Donald Trump doesn't know when to shut the heck up, you know, and Jeff Sessions does. So uh, this would be, this wouldn't even be nearly the issue it is if Donald Trump could keep his mouth shut. But of course he can't. I think Jeff Sessions is a lot smarter, a lot more politically savvy than the president of the United States. And he's trying to do what he can to limit the damage, because even though I don't know that he's a huge fan of Donald Trump per se, he sees this, like I think a lot of other conservative Republicans, as an opportunity to get into office and to make things happen and to convince this political newcomer who seems to be interested more just in winning than in actual policy to use him as a vessel to advance one's own agenda. And if just Jeff Sessions can do that and bring back the criminal justice policies of the 1970s and 1980s, I think he's going to count that as a win, though I think the country will count that as a big loss. And that kind of – what's fascinating about that, though, is you start talking about Trump with Sessions. I mean the fact that Trump can't keep his Twitter mouth shut – um, do you think this then sets up the position where, I mean, so if you're Sessions and, and we take this reading and he's doing the smart lawyer thing, uh, and Trump just can't keep tweeting about it, does this set Sessions or other White House officials up for serious problems in the future that probably won't eventually come to Trump's doorstep, but to their doorstep? So if something comes out, if he tweets something else and suddenly it looks like he can recall or something's held back. Does this put Sessions in a dangerous location? And, and I mean, do you think that the rest of the White House is thinking very carefully about, well, if I take these open positions in, you know, in a Senate uh, committee hearing, what's going to happen if who knows when Trump launches another bomb on, on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that people in the administration have have learned, if they didn't know already, that while Donald Trump uh, expects, uh, maybe demands loyalty from his people. It is not a two-way street with him. He is more than willing to throw his own people under the bus and has done so on a number of occasions. You add that with the fact that he, his, uh, he is, uh, does not control himself very well, seems to lack that ability. That is a dangerous sort of thing. And so, you know, there there are a lot of people who I think are, are treading very cautiously because they know that the president won't support them, won't have their back. And, and they're going to, I think, kind of follow Sessions' lead and try to say, if they're smart, say as little as possible to potentially either incriminate themselves or to anger their boss and get him to you know, lash out at them. So I think that's the, that's certainly no way to run an administration uh, or any kind of organization when you're the person at the top, just basically saying, well, I'm not going to support you. And I might just say wild stuff that contradicts what I told you to say earlier. So, I mean, it's, and it goes back to something we've talked about for a while now is that you know, for all this talk about what a great business person Donald Trump is, is he has, no ability to run a large and 
you know, involved organization with all, with a lot of people uh, dealing with a lot of different uh, uh, areas. I mean, I think he's a disaster at that, and and that's the kind of skill set you need to be an effective administrator. And he's not that. So, as a as a liberal, I think that's a great thing. You know, there's people saying, "Well, is there anything we can do to get Donald Trump to you know stop tweeting?" I'm like, "No, let's get him to tweet. In fact, we'll you know, let's get him to fire, try to fire you know a uh, Robbie Mueller. That would be." That would be awesome because he would just be shooting himself and the conservative agenda in the foot. And I say, go for it, Donald Trump. Tweet, fire, be yourself, man. Well, before we leave that topic and move forward, I'm going to say I'm actually going to take you up on a little bet on this. And Michael, I mean, now firing is a little different, but I think his tweeting, as much as as our listeners might know uh, that I'm not a big fan of it, I actually think it's one of the reasons that he's been relatively successful. Um, so if I was on the left, I'm not sure if I'd be telling him to tweet all the time. Uh, you know, we might need to. <laughs> okay. Well, but, I guess uh, I see what you're saying and, and I guess I'll make it, I'll make a distinction. I'll say that, that certainly it helps him with his base, but his base is 30 something low forties kind of percent. Those people aren't going anywhere, but that's not going to be enough for him to be successful in a policy sense, successful legislatively. So if he wants to just keep on pleasing that far right kind of base, well then that's, that's fine. That's great. Those people will support him to the very bitter end. But if he actually wants to get things done, if he wants to be a winner and not some horribly impotent, unsuccessful loser of a president, well, then he, that's not going to work for him. If you keep calling him impotent, though, he might respond to you on Twitter. Yeah, I well, just want to yeah, point well, that well, out. Well, well, <laughs> impotent, small hands, whatever. Uh, well, well, yeah, I want to turn our attention for a minute uh, over to the Fed, uh, the Fed rate hike. Um, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised short-term interest rates by a quarter of a point. Um, that's actually going to be the third rate hike since December. Um, this is a big sign that the Fed believes the U.S. economic conditions are good and improving. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Janet Yellen is going to say, quote, it reflects the progress the economy has made. Uh, so right now they're shooting for that top and bottom interest rate range to be between 1% and 1.25%. Uh, and that's actually a pretty dramatic increase when you remember that we've been at, z well, in 2008, we were at 0%, a little bit unprecedented there. Uh, and for our listeners, just to give a little bit of an idea, because I know the Federal Reserve can be a confusing thing. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank is a group of interrelated private corporations that are independent of the U.S., um, and they control the movement of money in the U.S. system. Primarily, uh, they control the amount of money available to circulate, and they deal with kind of these two big, they have two big tools to set this interest rate range. Um, one is ominously called the IOER, which is the Interest on Excess Reserves. That's the amount of money that large banks can get from the Fed. It's one of their primary tools. Um, and the other is the uh, reverse repo, um, which is a way for mortgage banks to get money and it kind of sets the floor uh, for the interest rate. And so using those two tools, they try to move the interest rate. Uh, so Obviously, this has a lot of implications, not just for you personally, but for the uh, the economy as a whole. So what do you think this increase, this now pattern of increase means, Mike? Uh, and do you think it's a good thing? Do you think that this signals that we got some good economic conditions going on? Uh, and how does that kind of relate to the broader political environment? Well, you know, I... I think certainly the when we talk about what what a healthy economy is and and certainly you know the Fed raises interest rates when they 
when they're concerned that maybe there, there's a possibility of growth being a little too fast. But it's, it's a weird thing, right? Because it's sort of like trying to turn around an ocean liner because what the Fed does doesn't have immediate effects. And also the information that the Fed acts on is not like to the moment. It's, you know, it's economic data that is by its very nature, a reflection of what things were like in the recent past and not right now. So it's incredibly difficult, the job that they have. But but in terms of, you know, what they look for, well, obviously, you know, what do we mean when we say a healthy economy? Well, there, I think there are at least uh, there are at least three components of that. Right. Uh, the first is full employment. And we're pretty much at full employment right now. And what that means is, you know, between four and five percent unemployment. And that's just because of natural kind of job churn and that sort of thing. And that that looks really good. And that's one of the things that the Fed pointed to. Right. The second thing is inflation. And and most people would say, well, we don't want any inflation, right? But but actually, no. If inflation gets too low, you start to have that danger of running into a deflationary spiral, and that is just disastrous for a whole bunch of reasons. And so the Fed shoots for around two percent. But but if you have that inflation, you also want to make sure that wage growth it keeps pace with that or is slightly ahead. And right now, wage growth is right around 3% or so. And if you're really geeky, go to the Atlanta Fed's website. They have this wage growth tracker thing that is really, really cool. Um, I'm kind of geeky on the, the Fed stuff. But anyway, so we have two of these three things, I think, going in the right direction. We have decent wage growth. We have a really low rate of unemployment. Uh, but inflation is a little bit lower than the Fed would like. And they've been systematically underrating this. They keep on saying, well, we think it's going to pick up, but it hasn't. And that's a sign of an economy that is not as that is not growing as quickly as we would like to see. And that's been a problem, of course, since the recovery. And this recovery has been now, I believe, nine years now. So it's been a long recovery, but it's been an incredibly slow recovery. And now there are some people who are saying that, well, this is just a new normal. This is what we got to expect. And looking back to the 90s when we had 3 to 4% you know, growth rates per year, that's not going to happen anymore. And this is just kind of how things are. Uh, so I, I think it's a smart move if for no other reason than – if, you know, you, you mentioned that the rate now is between what, what, one, one point two five. One and 1.25, yeah. If you, if you keep that rate bottomed out, then that takes away a tool from the Fed if we go into a recession because they can't, they can't use that to kind of stimulate the economy if we're already full out. So I think that makes sense. It gives them, frees up more options in the future. The other part of it, uh, you know, that the Fed announced is that they were going to be pulling back some of their positions in the bond market. Basically, that's another way of taking money out of the economy. And and, and again, I think this was something that they have been telegraphing for a long time. The markets reacted in a fairly sedate way to this since it was so well telegraphed. It makes sense to me. The underlying issue to me is, well, you know, is this going to put the brakes on already slow economic growth? Then uh, maybe, maybe a little bit. Um, God knows the Fed has been wrong before in the past, certainly in the mid 2000s they were. Uh, but uh, I, I, I guess I sort of trust Janet Yellen on this. So she uh, has a background as a labor market economist and, and knows her stuff. And so I think this is a smart kind of judicious move by the Fed. 
No, I mean, I think it definitely indicates that the Fed thinks that the economy is doing better. And ironically, this is one of the areas where what everybody kind of thinks and believes can actually push an economy in the right direction, right? Because if, if the market, I mean, the market is just a bunch of people feeling confident and buying things. And so right. um, if people think they should be more confident and they act more confident, that creates a feedback loop in that sense. Um <clears throat> But obviously, I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical of the Federal Reserve than you are, sure. Mike, um, being the uh, being the good libertarian that I am. Uh, and I oftentimes I worry about the Fed's uh, use of its monetary policy uh, because, as you kind of rightfully know, when you start making these kinds of changes, it can be very difficult to see what the, the long term impact will be. And in a world where consumer spending right now is still pretty low. Um, when these trickle down to say your uh, credit card rates, I can imagine that this is going to have some consumer spending changes as well. It, it worries me a little bit. I mean, not in a giant way. Well, you, you know, it's interesting. One thing I wanted to, to ask you about, and as, as you know, and I'm sure listeners may know that in the wake of the uh, financial crisis of 2008, 2009, the Federal Reserve literally created trillions of dollars of money, put that money into the economy. And one of the big concerns that a lot of folks on the right, and I think a lot of libertarians had, I don't want to necessarily assume those two groups are the same, because in many cases they are, and I want to get you upset. But, but the assumption was that this could create the potential for uh, serious inflation down the line when you throw all this money into the economy. And yet it seems like the problem we're having is exactly the opposite problem, that inflation is maybe a little bit too low, which is kind of a, I don't think that a lot of conservatives would have, uh, if they would have been asked, say, well, what's the effect of this going to be five, 10 years down the line, they wouldn't say, well, I think it's going to, you know, inflation is going to be well below 2%. They would have, you know, there were people saying, you oh, know, we could have five, 10, even hyperinflation, you know, it could be awful. And that hasn't come to pass for, for, for various reasons. Well, I will say, and you know, I'm, and this is going to, you know, you talk about the left, uh, some of the left's getting after you. This might uh, anger some of my libertarian friends, but, um, you know, I think those of us on the right, while I think we're right to be skeptical of things like the Federal Reserve, I think that this often, t this can often take a bunker mentality. Um, I, you know, I I get tired of the continual libertarian refrain. You know, next year's the year when the you know the money's going to go out of circulation, and if you don't have gold, it's all going to be over. You know, we're going to hit we're going to hit hyperinflation. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and then that's just not – there is no evidence to believe that that's the way um, monetary policy happens in the United States. Uh, so even if you're going to have issue with it, I think you, you make a good critical point of at least the libertarian position uh, where we – I think oftentimes we, we really do kind of have that bunker mentality that says we know what will eventually happen. Well, bad policy doesn't necessarily mean – uh, cataclysmic, apocalyptic yeah. uh, scenarios, and I think we tend to take that view too way far too often. Yeah, and that I, w I would argue that's not something that just libertarians do, but the right <laughs> end, the you know, so it's not just you guys, but but you know, I think it's 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 important and it can be really useful to have some sort of broad theoretical model for how politics works, how markets and how the world works. I, I found that incredibly useful, but also I think on a regular basis, you need to make, you need to check that model with 
uh, empirical data you have, and instead of coming up with some bizarre sort of system, you know, saying, well, if we look at this in this weird way and cherry pick these 12 things, that my model still sort of works, sometimes you need to adjust your theoretical model based on the reality, and that can be hard for anyone to do, uh, you know, not just, not just libertarians, certainly. I would argue that, you know, we talked about environmental issues a lot on, on, on the on the show, and I would argue that uh, an article of faith for a lot of folks on my side of things to the left is that nuclear power is horrible and evil and so forth, and I would argue that this is the sort of thing where the evidence might suggest that we might need to recalibrate that viewpoint uh, that has become sort of an article of faith on the left. So there are examples all the way around, but I think that's just the general point, important thing to, to keep in mind. You know, and it's a really hard thing to do. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, when you talk with students, I'm sure you have these same kind of conversations. When you're talking about social behavior sciences, which is what we do, uh, it's always difficult because, you know, nobody's theory of chemistry, I mean, nobody sits around and says, oh, did you really, did you see this yeah. in chemistry cast the other day? Two <laughs> oxygen models got together and I'm like appalled by that. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> you exactly. Don't have that issue. Um, but in social science, we do have that issue because you're going to have people go, oh, he was talking about, he was talking about a woman and a woman getting together or whatever it happens yeah. to be. Um, and so when you have these kind, when you're talking about people, um, I think it's much more difficult to, to revise, to put your theory uh, with data from the world because it comes with not just the empirical side of that theory, but with all kinds of implicit, often normative uh, biases. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, why don't we uh, finish up by talking about what we've been reading this week, Mike? Um, as for me, actually, I just got a, a new book. I'm about halfway through it, um, and I really highly recommend it to my readers. Um, it's Andrew Roberts' Napoleon, A Life. Uh, it's a really gripping biography on Napoleon. It's uh, one of the best single volume uh, biographies on him I've read. And what's really cool about it is recently a lot of additional documentation on Napoleon, especially letters have come to life. I'm talking about tens of thousands of new original source materials now available. And Roberts has incorporated all of this into this, uh, his single volume. As a matter of fact, it's the only single volume to have uh, all of that new material as part of it. So it's a brand new kind of take and look uh, at Napoleon in that era. And so I would, that's what I'm reading right now. I'm about halfway through and I, I really highly recommend it to anybody who wants a kind of an in-depth look at the post-revolutionary uh, war period, uh, France or Napoleon. Wow. That, that's, this is really weird. And uh, listeners, you might not believe this, but I did not know uh, that, that Trey was going to suggest or recommend that book. But uh, I, I kid you not, I finished, I actually picked up that book a while back and finished it maybe, I don't know, a month ago or so. And I was really impressed with it. I thought it was a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, to, if, if you, if you want to check to see that I'm actually being honest about that, you can go to my, my Goodreads page. I, I have a review up there on it saying great things about that is an excellent choice, a great biography. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that book. I, I think uh, I can definitely echo your recommendation on that. How ironic. So Isn't that weird? Saying is, is we probably bought it at the same time and it was on different parts of our reading schedule. You know, there you go. Yeah. I mean, very, very, very weird. So yeah, definitely a great book. Uh, so here's what I'm 
reading this week or what I, what I recommend this week. It's uh, much shorter. The, the Napoleon book is a big, long read, but definitely worth it. This will take you, my recommendation will take you maybe 10 minutes. It's an article entitled, Yes, Congress is Getting Less Smart. No, it's not Trump's fault, um, which I thought was a great title. It goes into detail about the importance of legislative staff and how congressional budget cuts have really diminished the, the kind of in-house expertise in Congress. And so, you know, what happens when you lose your internal experts? Well, you become a lot more, not only do you become less able to craft solid, sensible, intelligent policy, but you also become much more likely to be influenced by outsiders because I guarantee you that lobbyists are not cutting back on that. You know, the executive branch still has some really strong uh, assets and resources. So, you know, we've talked about earlier about Congress being at kind of a disadvantage in terms of the executive branch, in terms of power. Well, this is exactly the sort of penny wise pound foolish thing. People say, Oh, Congress needs Congress spends too much money and they need to cut back. And, you know, recent Congresses have cut back on, on this sort of thing. That's exactly the, the kind of dumb cut that you don't want to see. What we want to do is make sure that Congress has good, strong, stronger than ever institutional capability to deal with these issues and to be a co-equal branch with the executive branch and to be able to, you know, uh, refute some of the very biased things that come from from lobbyists. And this Congress is not in a great position to do that after years of, of budget cuts that really are not very smart. And so I think it was a great article about one of those sort of nuts and bolts kinds of things that, you know, not at all sexy, but this is the kind of stuff that really matters in terms of the quality of policy that we get. And, and so I would really encourage people to check this, this out. I thought it was a, a great, really informative article. And like I said, a, a reasonably quick read, but not, not the sort of thing that you're, you'll necessarily see uh, on the front page of any publication. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so there we go. I think, I think that uh, pretty much leads us up to, to the end of this first episode with, with, with you in the driver's seat, Trey. What'd you think? It's been a lot of fun taking this side. How's it been being the interviewee? I got to say, I loved it. It was freeing. I think I was probably a little more kind of just off the cuff and maybe a little more radical. I, don't, I, I definitely want to hear, I think it'll be great to hear what listeners think about that. So folks, if, uh, if you have any thoughts, and I'm sure you do, we have a great opinionated bunch of listeners. Definitely let us know. I had a lot of fun with this tree. I know you had a lot of fun with it, right? Yes. And so we, we, you know, we plan on doing this. So let us know what you think. So that is actually it for this episode. And of course, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, and we also want to thank our sponsors again for this week. First is SeatGeek, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first purchase. Just download the app or you can go to the website, SeatGeek.com, enter promo code PoliticsGuy. That's one word, no S. And you get $20 off your first purchase and Dollar Shave Club, where for a limited time only, new members get the first month of the Executive Razor with the tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. I don't know who Dr. Carver is, but he makes great shave butter. It could be a she. I was just a sexist assumption there. But anyway, check it out. Only five bucks with free shipping. Go to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. And if you've got questions, comments, corrections, random thoughts, you want to reach me, Trey, Jay, anyone really, 
mail at politicsguys.com or hit us up on our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And, you know, we really appreciate our great listeners who have generously supported the show through their donations. If you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight, you're already a financial supporter, we hope you'll consider hitting that share icon on your podcast app to pass this episode along to your friends, followers, crew, whatever, and leaving ratings and reviews of the show on your app, sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets. That also is really, really helpful, and we would appreciate it if you do that. So that wraps it up for this week. We will be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.